Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really great show today. It's going to be really interesting, something a little different. But before we get there, I have a couple of really great shout-outs that I want to make. First, I want to remind everyone that Brian Park is doing some really great outlines for some of the ACRAC episodes. So take a look at the show notes for episodes that you're listening to. If you see a link that says Outline by Brian Park, click on it because those outlines are really useful, especially if you're using these episodes for studying. The other thing that I want to recommend is a really great podcast that's out there called The Nocturnists. Now, I'm not getting, I'm not involved in this at all, and I'm certainly not getting any support or, or financial support or anything from them, but it is really neat. I listened to a few of them, and I, I think it's fantastic, especially for anyone involved in healthcare. If you are, have you've ever been through a difficult uh, time, if you've struggled with, your life in healthcare, if you've struggled with a difficult patient interaction, if you've had just a lot of stress or frustration with the patient medical record, anything like that, I think you'll really connect with this. This is a bunch of physicians who get together in San Francisco and they do actually like a live show where they share their experiences. They obviously change the patient details so that it's not violating HIPAA, but they talk about their experiences in a way that's really neat and I think can be really supportive and even healing for people in medicine who go through similar things. So I'd highly recommend checking it out. You can search for it on iTunes. It's called The Nocturnists. All right, so let's get on with our very exciting show for today. So I am excited to have with me today Jonathan Curley, who is a resident, an anesthesia resident, uh, at Texas A&M down in in Temple, Texas. Uh, And Jonathan uh, reached out to me, and we're going to talk more about why, but just has such an interesting story and a really fascinating take on life and on his approach to residency, stemming in no small part from his time in the military. And so uh, I want to share with everyone and give Jonathan a chance to share with everyone some of the kind of life lessons that he's learned that he's applied to his life and to his approach to anesthesia training that I think can really be useful for everyone. So Jonathan, thanks for reaching out and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. So let's jump in. Let me just ask you to maybe briefly introduce yourself. Tell people who you are and you know what, what uh, makes you someone who would reach out and want to share what you know. Sure. Um, I guess uh, a little bit of, a, of an intro. I'm, uh, I guess a non-traditional uh, resident and medical student before. Um, after I went to college, undergraduate, typically after high, after high school, straight to undergraduate, um, where I studied and was not quite sure exactly what I wanted to do, but, uh, for many reasons after graduating college, uh, I joined the military, uh, did the U S air force with a contract specifically to become a pararescueman or uh, PJ is a short version uh, of that. So I'll probably say PJ a lot of times when I talk about uh, what I did and, uh, so PJ most- is short for pararescueman. Is that right? It's actually a coding thing. So it was created back in Vietnam, and PJ was part of like a coding for the term. So PJ doesn't actually stand for anything other than the coding. Okay. Um, but and what is it, pararescue? So a pararescue is a it's a under the special operations umbrella on the U.S. military, and uh, really by different special operations groups all have different niches that they fill. Um, where PJs, the niche they fill is uh, we are able to we're trained and able to. Uh, retrieve personnel as well as equipment from pretty much anywhere on the map. If you threw a dart on the map, we'd be able to, uh, we're trained and equipped to retrieve personnel or uh, equipment from that location and really to get through any obstacle that might be in the way to retrieve that uh, that personnel equipment. Examples of uh, obstacles could be open oceans, uh, cliff faces, avalanches, um, anything, including up to uh, enemy forces. Um, it was created in Vietnam to, to uh, respond to uh, a lot of helicopters that got shot down okay. in that time frame. That happens less often now, and so as a result, we end up getting tasked to do a variety of different things, um, rescue different rescue uh, operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, and even civilian rescue operations, especially in Alaska uh, and other places like that. Great. So, you know, I will say that the other motivation I had um, when I got your initial email to want to pursue this with you is because as a new program director, I talk to a lot of other program directors who've been doing this for a long time when I go to various conferences. And as I told you, 
program directors will often comment on the fact that they, they find that people with a military background tend to make very good residents. Now, that is an interesting observation. I think it's probably true. And I'm interested to hear from you some of why you think that might be true and, and what, you know, as I said, the lessons that you learned. But I'm curious, you know, what uh, made you decide, hey, I'm going to reach out to Wolpaw and see if he wants to do a podcast episode with me. Sure. I think in general, anybody with a previous life experience is going to be able to bring that to a residency and make them a, a better resident. I do think military do. Uh, we've we've we learn a lot of lessons in the military that are difficult lessons under difficult circumstances. Um, and I do. I feel that a lot of uh, veterans have a lot to offer as far as uh, life experiences. But as a group, we tend to not share those uh, those lessons. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't uh, that I could go on and on about of why people, uh, veterans, don't share their experiences. Um, but that would take a while. But uh, I've kind of come to the realization lately uh, through listening to different podcasts that I listen to and uh, reading different books that I think it it is wise to maybe share a little bit more of this because there's a, a, a lot of very stressful and difficult things and we tend not to share it. And I think it could benefit others. As far as my motivation, particularly for this, um, I w- it all kind of stemmed from I went out for I, I listen to the podcast regularly, and I went for a run out on a run out for a run on a weekend. And uh, as I came back, I was listening to the podcast like I normally do. I came back in and uh, I saw a CBS special, and on that CBS special, they were talking about something called the Travis Mannion Foundation, and the Travis Mannion Foundation. Uh, so I learned on the special is a foundation that pairs up veterans with uh, particular youth that lack uh, role models in life. And it allows the veterans to tell stories of people that have passed away or um, in, in the service and how those stories affected them as, as people and providing mentorship particular to youth. And this organization is run by uh, three widows that lost their husbands uh, in the, the global war on terror, uh, terrorism. The first one is Heather Kelly. Uh, she's the daughter-in-law of the chief and staff, John Kelly, who lost her husband, Robert Kelly, on November 9th, 2010, in Helvin Province, uh, Afghanistan, by roads and bomb, while doing a dismounted or, or walking patrol. The next one was Ryan Mannion, who was wife of uh, Travis Mannion, who was killed on November, uh, April 29th, 2007, in the Al-Anbar province in Iraq by a sniper file, fire while he was attempting to uh, provide aid to wounded teammates during an ambush. And finally, Amy Looney, who's the wife of Bren Looney, who was killed in action with his helicopter crashed in combat operations on Afghanistan, September 21st, 2010. And the part that really struck me in the story was uh, that Brendan Looney was, I mean, uh, it was, uh, Brendan Looney was known to live by this mantra, and he would constantly say it over and over again, uh, per reports of the people that knew him well, be strong, be accountable, and never complain. So two parts of that, one, that kind of that struck me. One is uh, the whole this whole organization is, is exists to share the stories of uh, people that were killed in action, and uh, to motivate other people to be better and more productive. And two is that uh, that tra- uh, that Brendan used this mantra, and he he would say it daily and regularly, and it it seemed to be saying that he, he that this helped him achieve. Um, achieve greater things. And that part that was, again, interesting to me is that uh, in my time in the military, I saw that it's very common for people to uh, use slogans like this, use sayings like this in order to uh, enhance their performance. And it's something that I personally started doing uh, in my C1. I did it as a medical student as well as um, but in in my CA one year, I came up with one that was actually kind of similar and the one I, I came up with was work hard, team first, do the right thing. And where this comes up, where this comes up for me is every so often, I, when you're at work, um, a thought might come into your head that you know maybe I don't need to do this extra pre-op to get ready for tomorrow, or maybe I don't need to give give a break to somebody right now. I could just kind of relax, or or you know those little thought uh, uh, to bring you maybe down the not ideal uh, path. And I, what I end up doing is I say this to myself, uh, 
work hard, team first, do the right thing. And when I do that, it becomes clear that I should do that extra pre-op. I should give this break. And it's no longer a question. It's no longer uh, a temptation to not do the right thing. And is that, let me just ask you, Jonathan. So did you find the same thing? It sounds like Brendan, the gentleman you talked about, had his mantra, his mantra, be strong, be accountable, never complain, and use that in the military. Did you also find in your time in the service that having those catchphrases, those mantras would help you with difficult situations there? Um, definitely. So in my time in the service, we, we, every single, when I was going through training, uh, we had to say, uh, every time we went into the training facility, every time we left, we recite this thing is my duty as a pararescuman to save life and aid the injured. I'll be prepared at all time to perform assigned duties quickly and efficiently. These things we do that others may live. We would say it and then end it with who we are. Um, and every single time we would say it all the time. And it was almost a nuisance at the time going in and out of the schoolhouse. And we would be, if we, uh, messed up on something, we would have to pay with physical activity. Um, and so I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but once you start doing, doing the job and you start seeing, um, the amount of sacrifice it takes to do the job that we had to do. And, um, it's, it's difficult to explain to people that, that maybe haven't done this, but imagine going through terrible terrain with, uh, hundreds of pounds of gear on, uh, carrying other people that are injured with, they've got hundreds of pounds of gear on while you're sleep deprived. And, uh, it can be very grueling. It's not as I know, maybe glorious as you see on, on, on movie. I one, one might see in the movies. Um, and in those times that saying really becomes, uh, real and, uh, and has more meaning. Uh, so practicing it may have at times been frustrating when you were just in training, but when you, when you were in the field, when it was the real stuff happening, you found it to actually really help. I did. And, um, what I, what I found to be more helpful actually than that, uh, saying, that's that saying it became real to me later on, and I it, it's got an emotional response in me now. But we would say things like "hoo get some," and it's funny because I think you could make a comedy movie almost on that, almost having the stereotypical military guy saying "get some" and "hoo Um But things like that really have a lot of power uh, with with uh, with us where we're in. And I think to best illustrate that example would be to uh, cite uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who was popularized by uh, the book Lone Survivor and the movie Lone Survivor, who, if anybody doesn't know his story, but he was with a, a SEAL team that was ambushed and compromised out in the middle of nowhere where they couldn't get contact with uh, their headquarters. Um, and he ended up moving out from a covered position to a clear, open, wide open position where he must have known that he would pass away by doing this just to make a phone call to reach headquarters to give his team the best chance of survival. Uh, after taking multiple rounds and uh, he continued to make the phone call and ended it with a thank you. Um, and to me, I, I find these kinds of actions to be very interesting and uh, um, something to self-reflect on because it's no, I don't think anybody can say I would have done that, but to know that the outcome is going to be death and still to do the right thing requires a lot of gusto and uh, some motivation. I don't know if he said beforehand, get some or who ya or any of those stereotypical things, but we would often in the military use slogans like that in order to motivate us to do something that's very difficult that we didn't want to do. Yeah. And, uh, all right. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So let me ask you this, and this may seem almost like a, an obvious question, at least to you, but, but I think it's interesting to think about residency is hard. Now it may not be as hard as, as the military, but let's just say for people who haven't been in the military, you know, residency is tough and you're going through it. And I think what happens sometimes is people think, and they're not doing it consciously, but I think they do kind of get to a point where they think, look, I'm working so hard when I have to that when it comes to a choice of do I give back more to the team or do I take some more for myself? Let's just use the example of, you know, maybe the end of the day, you could go home or you could give another break, like you said. Well, I think some people think, look, I, it's, I need some time for me. I've got to go home. You know, I'm going to put myself first rather than the team first. Um, that's a hard that's a hard thing to struggle with. So 
why in that situation or any other, you know, what would you tell people, what motivates you when you choose, and we could go all the way to the extreme of the example you just gave of Michael Murphy, who, who, you know, gave, gave up his life for his team, but what is it on a much more basic level that people might face on a more daily basis? What is it that makes someone say, or why even would someone say, I'm going to put the team first? Hmm. What would motivate someone to make, put, put, to put the team first? I think, with, with at least with my experiences, um, uh, the closeness that we had as a, as a as a as a team is really what uh, was that driving motivation. To apply that to residency, um, it's I don't think the same level of closeness is for everybody uh, in their residency program, depending on the size. I'm, I'm sure, um, but I would say that. The reason putting the team first is important is because um, I myself am not special, uh, and if I go home early without helping out the team, somebody else has to pick up that slack. Um, and so, just having respect for your fellow teammates, and um, I think that is the main motivation uh, for me of why putting team first is so important. Do you find that you may actually get some personal? satisfaction from putting the team first in in the sense that it may actually contrary to maybe first glance making that sacrifice and putting the team first may actually improve your well-being because you then you know you did it you've kind of feel good about yourself and the contribution you've made i definitely i i like having my conscience clean that's that's for sure to be able to go home and know that i did the right thing um but at the same time, during residency, and I think throughout a career, you're building connections, you're building a reputation all the time, and uh, I prefer to have a, a reputation as someone who does work hard and uh, and does the right thing, and, and it's dependable. And I'm sure that would pay dividends in, in, in the future, um, but that's I, know, I don't think the reason for it. I really think it's just general respect for the people that you work with, and uh, if you don't pick up slack, someone else will have to. So. Great. Well, thank you, Jonathan. So let me ask you, you mentioned to me that you were intrigued by a uh, podcast uh, on MCRID, another fantastic podcast um, that involved Mike Loria, who's a fellow veteran. Um, And do you want to talk a little about that and share with people what you kind of found interesting about what uh, Mike talked about? Yeah. uh, So Mike Loria was uh, a friend of mine and I went through training together with him. He went to to med school a little bit after I did and uh, University of Chicago. He's going to be doing emergency medicine shortly. Um, and he's been on multiple uh, podcasts on MCRIT uh, with Scott, Scott Weingarten. And he did a, a recent uh, podcast where he talked about an auth- a paper that he wrote in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2017 called Psychological Skills to Improve Emergency Care and Providers' Performance Under Stress. And basically, Mike is really interested in um, human performance and especially response to stressful situations. My personal, I'm a little bit more interested in leadership uh, and how people respond to difficult decisions. Um, but what he talked about there was very applicable to kind of what I said into what Brendan, to Brendan's mantra that he had. And uh, he said, in order to do well under stress, uh, he has this mnemonic, has beat the stress fool, which he says uh, in a Mr. T um, uh, voice from the 80s. Now, are 18th. you going to show us what that means? What's, what's the Mr. <laughs> well, T? I don't think I'll do as well as he did. <laughs> beat the stress, fool. All right. It's awesome. The, is the mnemonic. And that stands for breathe, talk, uh, see, and uh, focus. And the, the two parts that I would like to expand on slightly are the, the talk part and the and the and a little bit about the focus because I, I think it is um, a little, it's helpful. Um, so for the talk, he describes it as a positive self-talk and uh, describes as kind of cognitive reframing or as changing your mindset. Um, and that you could use. There's a bunch of different kinds of self-talk. There's instructional, motivational, mood-related, and self-affirmative uh, stru- uh, talk. Instructional example might be MS Maids. We I use that pretty often during uh, not just setup, but during the case, just kind of troubleshoot things. Um, and then motivational. Now, let me just ask you, John, to share with people because maybe everyone doesn't know what MS Maids is. What is that? Yes, uh, machine suction, uh, monitors, airway, IV, uh, drugs, and special equipment is, is, is how I do it. And just a way to set up the room as well as uh, I use it sometimes to kind of sweep through the room and make sure that there's nothing missing or something 
gone awry. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. So I think another common one is soap IM. So that's a one we commonly teach, but same exact, right? So suction, oxygen, airway, pharmacy, IV, and monitors. So similar things to make sure you're you're not forgetting anything. Uh, and then in terms of sweeping, the other one that you're reminding me of is that I was taught actually by my program director my second week ever of CA one year is ABC, ABC. So airway, breathing, circulation, obviously. And then the second time around is anesthesia. Make sure you have some on. B, for body position, make sure the arms haven't fallen off, the head isn't you know sitting on top of some uh, little IV piece. And then uh, C, for Celsius, meaning check the temperature. So those kind of things, I agree, can be really useful to get you making sure you're not forgetting anything. Yes, and uh, so uh, Mike said that this... Uh he, he mentions that this sort of talk of um, positive self-talk to, to get yourself in a positive mindset for a stressful activity can be very, very par- powerful. Um, and that's kind of the same thing I was saying about with Brennan's quote of how using a, an internal monologue of a reminder of be strong, be accountable, um, never complain can change your mindset and help you do the right thing even when the right thing is hard. Um, and actually, I think is a common misconception about people in the you know, special operations community, perhaps that they're this superhuman uh, or um, different than maybe the average person. And, and that's that's not the case. Um, I need this every day to I, I use my uh, saying almost every day to help me do the right thing. It's not it doesn't come natural. There's still temptations to maybe uh, slack off here or there. And I, I feel like the it helps you stay on the right track. Um and so it was just interesting that the Laurie, that Laurie brought this up, and, and it was a big part of his his paper of uh, using this self talk to uh, not only perform well, but also motivate you to to do the hard hard things. And do you have some and, tips, Jonathan? Let's say, or does Mike have tips? I mean, let's say someone says, "Oh, great, I want to try this." Um, you know, they come up with something you you use, as you said, be strong, be accountable, never complain. Some you know somebody may come up with something else, but you know. Should they use it? Should they practice it when they're not in a stressful situation? Wait until they are? Should they do it a certain number of times a day? Can it be long? Should it be short? What are some guidelines of how to come up with and use these things? In his paper, uh, and, and Mike's really good at this, if anybody's interested in looking at some of the stuff that he's gone come come out with, he's really good at uh, going over the research and the, and the science behind um, a lot of the things he writes about. Um, two of the things that stood out to me in reading his paper is uh, keeping them short um, and uh, ref- saying it multiple times per day, not just not using it just when you need it, but just multiple times a day, just repeating it to yourself, um, which, again, stood out to me when I heard his podcast. Uh, that's exactly what Brenda was doing. He was, uh, it was short, be strong, very short, be accountable, and, um, and uh, never complain, very, very short, and just saying it over and over again. And all of his friends that, on, that were interviewed, at least on there, were saying that he would always say this. It was a constant thing that he was constantly re-saying. Yeah, so, that's great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's some interesting research, actually, that also suggests this can be useful for families. So families that have a slogan uh, can actually get through difficult times better than families that don't. And I find that so interesting. Mm-hmm. But my wife and I have started with our kids. Actually, we started a long time ago when they were very young, uh, saying things like, wall paws are problem solvers, not complainers, right? So mm-hmm. that's how we address the whining that is an inevitable part of, of being a child, obviously. But you know, having that slogan is supposedly, you know, very useful. Um, and obviously, as you as you and Mike uh, have mentioned, also at work too. He also mentioned that it was interesting that, um, and I agree with this. It's it's interesting that this was never taught to people in the in the military. Uh, we just kind of adapted to it as a way of survival. And as I already mentioned, with the example of uh, uh, Michael Murphy using it to achieve to do things that would otherwise be very difficult to do. Uh, to accomplish a very difficult task. Um, and it's interesting that so many people in the military kind of just pick this up along the way. Um, and Mike in his podcast mentions that, uh, and as well as a paper, that this is these are techniques that are taught to CEOs at very high levels, and uh, these are techniques that are taught to people in NASA. Uh, and it's odd because to me it seems very obvious uh, using these kinds of self-talk and um, motivational techniques but apparently it's not completely obvious to everybody since it's being taught to athletes, NASA, CEOs, all sorts of people. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned you wanted to focus on two things. So that was the talk. What about the focus part? So the the focus part, I think, is, is interesting. And this is uh, I mean, a little bit of a side note. But uh, uh, he used the word uh, focus 
while he's in a stressful situation to kind of get himself back on the task. Uh, and I had something similar and it's just weird. It's strange to me to, to read Mike Gloria's uh, paper and say, I came to this, those same conclusions uh, with our similar backgrounds. Uh, the one that I use and I've been using all year is uh, uh, prioritize and execute, which is actually comes from um, a book uh, by uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, uh, Extreme Ownership. Okay. Uh, they wrote a book uh, and that's one of the things that they talk about, uh, prioritize and execute. Um, and I find that this to be very useful. I, I use it a lot actually in my intern year when you would come into ICU, for example, and there's a bunch of patients to be seen. And maybe my co-interns are really anxious because there's too many to be seen in a short amount of time. And I'm like, relax. We'll just prioritize and we'll execute. We see, we'll see the most sick patients. We'll see them first. We'll take care of whatever needs to get done. And then we'll move on to less severe things. And I think it's just a way to just in a stressful situation where things are going awry, just stop, prioritize what's what needs to be done, and then execute those things first. Yep. Um, kind of bring yourself back when you find you're, mm-hmm. you're freaking out a little bit or you've lost focus. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, you know, there's one thing I want to ask you about that I believe on that same episode Mike and uh, Scott talked about, which is square breathing as a way to kind of help focus, help yourself de-stress in the moment. <laughs> Um, which I thought was really interesting. I had not heard about, but I uh, actually now have started doing um, more when I'm frustrated with my kids, actually, so that I can calm down uh, more than at work, but certainly at work in stressful situations, too. Um, but I, you know, square breathing as a, as a way to very um, carefully breathe. And I think that they mentioned it as a technique used con- uh, commonly in the military. And the idea that they described, and you tell me if, if this is something you do as well, but is to you know take a breath in over three seconds, hold it for three seconds, or maybe it's four seconds, hold it for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, wait for four seconds, breathe in again. So you can imagine that as a square wave of breathing. Is that something you are familiar with, and, and do you find that useful? It is something we're aware, I'm aware of and, and that I used a lot in the military, particularly in the um, in our training in the pool. We so when we went through our training, was a lot of it was our selection, at least a lot of it was in the pool, and it was a lot of underwater activities to uh, stress us as as trainees going through the selection process. And we were taught uh, to breathe certain ways to kind of decrease our heart rate uh, under us under those environments. And some of those were used later on in the mill uh, during operation. Again, it's not something that was taught inherently to us. It's something that we would naturally use. And interestingly, I. When I listen to Mike's podcast, I kind of didn't really pay attention to that part as much because it's it's not in my personality to really kind of get into these breathing techniques and I'm more a little analytical and uh, straightforward. But on a recent day in the OR, I had a patient that was not doing well at all um, and had to get a central line placed during the middle of the procedure, and it was in less than ideal conditions, and uh, it was it was a stressful situation. Um, and I found myself, as I was prepping all the equipment for the central line, I took a deep breath in, held it, and I, a little bit like pressure as exhaling and mm-hmm. a, slow, a slow breathe. And then I remembered right after I did it, I was like, that's exactly what Mike was talking about in the podcast. And so I naturally did it in that circumstance, and I know I've done it before. And so that is something uh, that, uh, that I've used uh, in the past, and um, it, it I think Mike gets into a little bit of, uh, I believe he does in, the, in his article, of the physiology behind it and of how it helps uh, in a, under stressful situations. Yeah, absolutely. So people can check that out more. Um, great. So you've shared already some really interesting stuff that you've applied. Are there other lessons that you have learned along the way that you think are applicable to being a good resident or successful resident or, or however you want to define it? Yeah, uh, there there are, and so um, I share a, a bit of a story that's a, a very personal story to me, um, and I kind of preface with, uh, although I reached out to to, to talk about uh, these topics in particular, being a good resident and some of the lessons I've learned to help me be a good resident. I'm in no means saying that I am a, a really great resident, I, and I really feel that a lot of the people that I've talked I've talked about so far, and that I will talk about in the podcast, would have been much better residents uh, than I ever could be. Um, but the, just having them as role models and heroes, uh, uh, personal heroes, uh, I think helps me want to get better. And I think in general, people that listen to podcasts, like people might be turning, tuning into here, they, they listen because they want to get better. And, um, I think 
wanting to get better is definitely the, the first the first step. And uh, I'm gonna share a couple of their stories. One of the reasons this is such a, a more personal uh, story for me is because uh, when I was deployed in Afghanistan, uh, before deployment, um, I worked with a small group of of, of guys. Um, and there were three of us that worked together very closely. Uh, and the reason we worked closely together because we were going to work in that group of three more than more than anybody else. And it was one officer, another enlisted guy, and myself. And while I was deployed, another team that was in a different part of Afghanistan, uh, their officer got ill with a skin infection that was bad enough that he had to go back home. And so because of that, they were lacking an officer, and we had extra on our team. So the officer that was on my team with myself and another uh, guy, he uh, got he was going to get assigned to that unit. And originally the plan was that all three of us were going to go. It was going to be myself. Uh, his name is Joel Gens, and uh, another one which I won't name because I think he's uh, believes he's still in. But the last minute they changed their mind, and uh, it was just Joel that went, and I stayed at the base that I was at. About three weeks later, I was in and uh, I was going through my gear and my bag and just making sure everything was squared away and set. And we got word that a helicopter was shot down and that the PJ team was a PJ team was on it. So we flew out and we were above and we were circling above and saw the helicopter crash below. And there was chatter on the on the uh, the Taliban had their radios and we can hear their radios because they don't have the technology of encryption all that. And they were saying that they had eyes on us and they were about to shoot us down, our helicopter. And as a result, we got called away and another team went to go do the recovery, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is not land there knowing I didn't know who was on the helicopter that, at that point, but I knew that I knew them. Uh, we didn't know who it was. And so we went back back home and uh, another team actually recovered, recovered, uh, the, recovered the, did the rescue operation there. So it's it's a very uh you know that was a, because I was there and the connection that I had with that that flight, that's a, a very personal uh, story, and I really hold uh, their lives and kind of what they stood for uh, as uh, things to strive for. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What maybe do you want to tell me a little about each of them and what kind of um, what they how they inspire you? Sure. So first one was Joel uh, that I'll mention. And Joel was, I remember him as a, he always wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, he went to Purdue, graduated in 2007 with aeronautical engineering, and he was uh, kind of top of the class, really high GPA, uh, just did a great job in pretty much everything he'd done. Um, and that's how I remember him. I remember him as an overachiever, someone who could have done anything in life. And uh, in fact, another story about him, he's a, he was an avid runner. He ran the Boston Marathon and uh, in was in the top 4% uh, for that. And it just kind of shows what kind of person he was. He was just an overachiever. Mm-hmm. And so when I think back on Joel and the fact that he can't continue to overachieve in life, um, I am just not okay with things like doing the bare minimum with uh, getting an average ITE score, or uh, which is an exam that we take every single year um, in anesthesia, or just hitting the bare minimum requirements with things. Because I know Joel wouldn't do that, and Joel's not able to um, continue to overachieve. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the you know big lessons I, I, I get from Joel, and I'm, I hope every day to bring a little bit of that with me. The next one was uh, Ben White, and Ben White was an interesting guy. He was from Tennessee, a real kind of a country kind of guy uh, who didn't swim at all, which is funny because he went to pararescue training, which is a very uh, difficult uh, course to get through. My class started with 80 to 90 people. I'm not remembering exactly how many it was. And we ended up graduating with six. Wow. And all the people that fell out were all in the pool. So we'd go to the pool and they would just find ways to uh, make us miserable in the pool with breath hold and different activities. And people would quit throughout the pool sessions. So showing up to in-dock no, that's what, that was a selection course. So that's what we called it. Uh, not knowing how to swim at all um, and making it through the other end is really a, a lesson in perseverance. And uh, when I think of Ben White, I think of perseverance. And I think if Ben White can make it through Induck, that selection course, not knowing how to swim, I can make it through my next call. I can make it through a residency. I can make it through a fellowship. Um, those things are not, are not going to be an issue. 
So, yeah, that's really a, a story, as you say, of perseverance, right, of someone being able to accomplish your goal if you stick to it, no matter how, how kind of hard or how high the barriers. Yes, and it's very applicable. There's actually a, a, a med student that, that's, that I know of now, and he's trying to decide whether he wants to he, do anesthesia or not because he's not sure if he wants to do neurosurgery because he's maybe not sure if he'd match. Uh, and I haven't been able to talk to him yet, but I want to I want to talk to him and tell him the story again. And, um, and I think he should do anesthesia because I'm biased. But of course, uh, uh, you could do anything if you just, if you just persevere. And I think that's a story that Ben White um, reminds me of. Great. The last story on that on that there's three people that I had a personal connection with, uh, even though there was multiple people on that on that flight. It's, it's Michael Flores, and I, I get kind of emotional sometimes when I talk about you know his story. So I'm just going to read it. Um, but I love a little, a little expert excerpt here that I'm going to read, but Michael Flores, when I think of Michael Flores, I think of a family man and I think of priorities. He was survived by an extended family that loved him dearly, including a wife, son, and daughter. I personally feel this is the greatest tragedy of war that sons and daughters lose their parents, spouses lose their, lo- lose their loved ones, and parents lose the best thing that ever happened to them. Michael will never get to tuck his son in bed again or his daughter or help his daughter with his homework. And, that's, and that is a tragedy. I take the story to heart, and I'm very conscious of how I spend my time as a result. For instance, if a case is canceled and I have an extra two hours suddenly, I could use that to eat a snack or watch ESPN. Um, but if I do that, that's lost time at home uh, to help maybe my daughter study or hold my brand-new baby uh, that I've recently, recently had a brand-new baby. Uh, so I can't take these simple things for granted because so many parents – robbed of these opportunities and uh that uh might not be applicable to everybody that little expert that excerpt that i read there but everybody's got something at home that they value and it's something at home that's important to them so on a day-to-day basis wasting time and i know i know you did a podcast on time management that's, that's one i actually have not heard um but i'd reference people maybe to that yeah. but wasting time in the day might take away from things that are very important later on. And the lesson for Michael for me is that our time is very valuable and did not take it for granted. So, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. And as we talked about before, there are times when it sounds like you may choose to stay uh, at work to help a teammate, a, a, a co-resident or um, something like that. But uh, when you have free time, you're really going to maximize your studying. You're going to maximize whatever you can so that when you get home, you can really spend that time with your kids. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think that's you know a really great lesson. I agree with you. I think time management is so key. It's very hard to do all the things that we're asked to do as medical providers. Certainly as residents, it's even harder because you're working a ton of hours. You've got other things that are put on you by the ACGME, a quality improvement project, research, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't get a lot easier as an attending, but you're probably working less hours. But in general, it's hard. And so if you can structure things so that you can be efficient, it allows you, I think, to actually do better uh, from an overall well-being standpoint because you do get to have a little bit more of that time you need with your loved ones, family, et cetera. So when we talk about kind of maintaining a, a good attitude, a positive outlook, you mentioned that some stories that really speak to that. Are there other things that you keep in mind that help you keep up a positive outlook even when things get tough? Yes, uh, I'd like to reference two, uh, two stories or two, um, um, two people. The first one is uh, Pat Tillman, um, which I think has a lot of valuable lessons looking at Pat Tillman's life. But uh, – and also would like to plug his scholarship for anybody that's listening uh, and that likes running. He's got a, a run that is April 27th, 2019, um, which uh, helps fund a scholarship foundation that uh, is a really inspiring scholarship foundation and does a lot of good work. Um, if anybody's interested in looking at the Pat Tillman Foundation, I'd recommend doing so because they have some really inspiring stories on there of people that have won the, their, that award and that scholarship. Now tell but us, Pat who, Tillman was, yeah, who was Pat Tillman? He was an American football player uh, who played uh, for the Arizona Cardinals. He was drafted in the ninth and the seventh round of the 1990 and 1998 draft, and he wasn't even projected to make the team, which is again a story of perseverance of how and overcoming things because he ended up becoming a record holder on tackles and an all-star uh, football player. And then in 2002, when he was facing an opportunity to uh, get a big contract because he was an all-star, exceeded all expectations of being a seventh-round pick. 
instead of uh, continuing on as a football player, he ended up uh, joining the U.S. Army and enlisted as uh, and became a ranger. Um, then, on April 22nd, 2004, in Afghanistan, his unit was ambushed, and during the fight, while he was providing coverage and helping fellow soldiers, he was ended up, was killed by fratricide, which is killed by our uh, our own forces, um, which is a tragedy. But the thing that really strikes me about Pat Tillman, I think there's so many lessons to be learned about, learned from him, was the fact that he stood for something, he stood for an ideal, uh, and he was completely dedicated to it. Um, and he, he stood for something that's that's meaningful. I think it, as an anesthesia resident, it's it's easy to kind of focus on um, the end the end of of everything of a better job, uh, a better better paycheck, a better uh, life, um, and to not focus on the today and and the right now, uh, and uh, to focus on something meaningful of today. And for me. What's meaningful with my work is, and one of the reasons that I went to anesthesia is that as an anesthesia provider, we were able to be there, uh, and I put air quotations around, be there for patients under such a wide variety of, of circumstances. Because for that person that's, that's receiving anesthesia, this is a pivotal event in their life. I really think that we're privileged to be able to be there for them during that time. Um, and so that's the thing that I like to focus on that, that's meaningful. Uh, Meaningful, and it's it's kind of on the same lines of what you say of uh, at the end of your cor- of your podcast of what you do is important and valued, mm-hmm. um, and the, what we do is important and valued, and it's appreciated by our patients. Absolutely, um, I think a, a good example of these things are like during a C-section, uh, I, just to be there and uh, for somebody during this during this time, and to reassure them that it's going to be okay. Uh, I, those are that's one event that's very general, but. I really appreciate that time. It's just a monumentous event in their life, and you're able to assist them through it and keep them calm. Um, another example is recently I, I pre-opted a lady that had a hemorrhagic stroke, and her mom was in the room, um, and I got her to sign the consents for us because that is, I'm very sorry about what happened and just showed compassion. And I could tell that that really made a big difference at that, at that moment for that person, uh, that there was somebody there to, to, to share this experience and, and to show empathy to, to, to somebody. And uh, I, I, I really, I learned that I've, I picked up, I think Pat Tillman's story shows that it, it's important to uh, have a value for today to stand stand for, not to kind of look at the future, um, which is easy to do during residency. You know, I, I love that you say that. I think it's easy to do in, in life, right? It's all, it's very easy to be so focused, especially in medicine, especially because we're taught this from the beginning, but to be so focused on the eventual goal that you miss the journey to get there. And there's a lot of wonderful things along the way, even in training, right? Even though residency is hard, as you point out, there are very real interactions with patients, with colleagues, with uh, people that you meet that can really be wonderful and can help you grow as a person. Those things are easy to miss if you're so focused on getting through every day to get to your goal that you don't pay attention to what's all around you. Yes. Uh, the other uh, story that I'd love to tell is someone of Mark Forrester, um, who was, uh, I met when I was deployed in Afghanistan. And he was assigned to a Green Beret unit or a Special Forces unit. Uh, and he was a combat controller, which means he directed air attacks um, to enemy forces or whatever they whatever they needed. And uh, I met him because we were doing actually a body recovery, which is another tragedy of a special forces soldier that got swept away by a river as the Taliban controlled the flow of the water um, and saw them crossing and raised it for the last man. And their body was not recovered, so we went in to assist in, in that recovery. Uh, during during that recovery, uh, we were in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there was a small village uh, right outside right outside by the river that was completely run by the Taliban that we had not uh, controlled at all. And through our efforts of recovery, the Taliban constantly was trying to send in different fighters to either sweep us up and capture us or or kill us um, during our recovery attempts. And uh, Mark For- Forrester was pretty impl- uh, pivotal in preventing these things and. I remember we would take shifts kind of doing the search, and I was up on a bluff, a high position, uh, overlooking the watch area. And I remember one locate, at one time, Mark ran over to me and grabbed me and said, hey, come come on, I'm going to show you something really cool. And he, he, 
he directed an air attack that was uh, a bit away, but not too far away. Uh, and he had a bunch of jets and helicopters came in a lot of explosions. And it was one of the cooler things that I've ever seen. And he was just so excited and, uh, just so excited about what he was doing. Um, and then an, another look time and just kind of illustrate the joy that he brought to his work is he was directing different fighter jets above as we were doing the recovery. And again, I'm up on this high bluff and he was talking to a Navy and a Marine uh, fighter jet. And he kind of uh, spurred them on to have a competition with each other of who could fly lower to the ground uh, to our position. And I don't remember who won, but I remember that both of those jets were so, so close. I, I don't know how, but I think I saw the guy like wave as he went by because I could see his silhouette, which I don't know how I could have seen because he was moving so fast. But it was a really cool thing to see. Wow. Um, and Mark was hipping, like hooping and hollering and just loving his job. And, um, and that's the memory I get of Mark that he uh, really loved his job because unfortunately on September 29th, 2010, he was in a fierce fight with the same special forces team. Uh, and they were moving through different terrain in a village. And one of his teammates was shot and killed and Mark, uh, moved back to his location to try to retrieve him and end up getting shot and was fatally killed. Mm. Um, and it's a really tragedy cause he was, a, he was a really, really great guy. And, uh, but when I remember him, I remember how much he just loved his job. And, uh, I just, the lesson I get from Mark is don't let people, don't let other people rob you of joy at work. Um, and uh, I think anesthesia is a, a really like, I feel very fortunate. It's, I get to do, I get to interact with a lot of different people, I get to inter- use technology. Uh, there's so many great things about anesthesia and there's always difficult people at work. Um, but I really try to not let anybody who might be difficult take away the joy of, of my job because it's, it's a fun job and I'm, I'm fortunate to do it. And are the things that help you when you're facing a difficult colleague, surgeon, attending, whatever it may be, uh, that help you do that? I may be just thinking about the lessons you learned from Mark. Well, in general, interacting with other people, uh, there's always difficult people to, that are difficult to interact with at work. Um, and I definitely think that general military experience of being able to say yes sir and just nod my head uh, goes a long way and I, especially some particularly difficult surgeons perhaps uh, they uh, it works very well uh, for me that's something that's uh, i have a lot of experience doing because it's just something you learn during the military and mm-hmm. it's it's hard to kind of suggest that to others but i think in general just interacting with different people at work that the best thing to do is to treat other people uh with res- with respect um, and that goes a, a really long way. Uh, and uh, a story to kind of illustrate this would be someone named John Brown. Um, I'd like to tell the story a little a little bit. But John Brown was uh, a guy that, that that I knew. But he, he played uh, football and he was a basketball player in high school, big athlete, and ended up going to uh, John Brown University. Uh, coincidentally. Uh, he, he went on a swimming scholarship and he was actually, he was really interested in, interested in anesthesia and he wanted to be a nurse, a nurse anesthetist. Um, and that was his goal. But going through college, he saw some uh, recruiting videos and, uh, of the different special operations community and, um, ended up becoming a PJ instead. And, uh, uh which is a story not too different than my own. Um, and, uh, while he was a PJ, he, he was, uh, very accomplished. Um, another thing that people don't know about in the special operations community is, uh, people often think a seal is a seal or, you know, as an example, cause everybody knows about the seals. Um, but there's seals and then there's special units in the seals and there's just special teams on those teams. And the, the rabbit hole gets darker as you, as you move down. Uh, but John Brown was on, uh, a, a specialized team of PJs that do the most, uh, um, sensitive missions, the things that you never hear about, and was not on the same level as myself. Um, and I met him when I was deployed. And this, although there was this big difference between us, I was brand new, never deployed before, never really done anything. And he was very experienced on this very specialized team. Uh, when he met me, he shook my hand and he treated me like I was completely the same as him. Um, and I remember he would he brought us over to his, his the compound that they were at, which is. Uh, on these bases, there are these special units that uh, do things that no one ever hears about. They have their own area that nobody else can get on there. There's a guard there. It's all bi- wired off inside a base. 
uh, and nobody else can go in there, but he would bring us in and he's there, there with me. It's fine. We go in there and, um, hang out. And so I just remember how, uh, nice and, uh, respectful he was, even though he didn't need to be. Um, and, uh, it's, I, I try to remember that. And I find that a lot of times people at, at work might not be as respectful. Um, or I don't want to say a lot of people, but it's easy at work to fall into not being as respectful to people that don't have as much experience or maybe people that have different experience than you. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much experience in my case would be like some of the interns or the, uh, med students or different experience would be other consultants. And, um, but the, instead of kind of talking down to those people who are not, uh, or talk even amongst your colleagues, um, seeing that they have value and that they're important, uh, it goes a long way in showing people the respect. Uh, ways that I'm able to em- um, employ this at work is just saying hello to people everyone, when I walk by, um, and just in general listening to people and giving feedback that what they're doing is important. And the general mission of taking care of the patient is fulfilled with, uh, with their presence and what, what they're doing. And I think that goes a long way. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Jonathan, I just want to really thank you. I, you've really taken some time. You've shared some incredibly personal stories. I think they're the kind of things that can really help people, especially people who are at this point not going to go back and serve in the military and have those experiences. But to hear you talk about them so eloquently and so meaningfully, I think are things people can really take into their own lives and practice, and I think it makes a big difference. So I want to thank you as well as, of course, thank you for your service to our country and all the hard work you're doing now in residency, helping your teammates and your patients. So thanks. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing everything, and thanks for all you do. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Wow, that was fantastic. I'm so glad that Jonathan reached out. I think a lot of those things he shared, the courage he had to share them, are really inspiring, and I hope you agree. Please feel free to reach out, uh, comment on the website if you have things you'd like to share with everyone, maybe your own stories if you've been in the service. Uh, and of course, if you want to reach out to me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com, I'm happy to pass any comments along to Jonathan personally. Special thanks, as always, to Brian Park for his work on the outlines for the episodes and to everyone who has signed up for Patreon to become a patron of the show. Your support means a lot. If you haven't yet, you still can. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash a-c-c-r-a-c, patreon.com slash ACRAC, where you can become a patron of the show and help support the making of the show. We would, of course, really appreciate it. Also, if you haven't recently, even if you have, but it's been a while, consider going to iTunes and finding the podcast there. Leave a comment and a rating. That really helps other people find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia-related podcast. You can, of course, check out all the episodes that we've ever done at ACRAC.com, as well as join the mailing list and leave comments on any episode that you would like. All right, that's it for today. Huge thank you to Jonathan Curley for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jonathan Curley. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.